Ruth 1, a couple of weeks ago, we saw this gal, Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech, because of famine in Israel, made their way east to Moab from Israel in what is now modern-day Jordan. Once they got there, there was death, there was marriage, and there was more death. The outcome was Naomi was in Moab by herself from a human perspective. Her husband and her sons had died, um, her sons after marrying Moabite women. And the first message that I preached from Ruth, I told you all, and myself is included in this, that grief makes us think incorrectly, makes, makes us think wrong. Um, so when we see Naomi encouraging Ruth to go back to idolatry, I think that's probably Naomi's grief at work to a certain degree. When we see um, <clears throat> Naomi want to change her name because she feels that God has judged or punished her with these circumstances, I think that that can be attributed to her grief to a certain extent. In verse 20 of Ruth 1, after she makes her her way back to Bethlehem and everybody's excited to see her, they're calling out her name, which means pleasant or delightful. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. When we're suffering, and and maybe especially when we're suffering with grief, we might find ourselves believing things about God that are just not true. I'm going to say that again, because if you're not suffering right now, that it was probably easy to tune out. When we are suffering, and, and I think especially when we're suffering with sorrow, grief because of circumstances, it becomes easier for us to believe things about God which are simply not true. So when you're going through a time of trouble and you begin to think, ah, yes, this is God's judgment or this is God's punishing me for my sin, There may be an element of truth to that where you're being disciplined and chastised in order to be brought back into alignment with what God has commanded and what is best for you. But the heart of God has not become one of distaste or despising you. These verses remain true regardless of your circumstances. In Psalm 34, 18, David says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's true no matter what. Until death separates you from the land of the living. Matthew 5, 4. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That's true. No matter what your circumstances are. And then in Psalm 55:22, there's a directive to us to cast our burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Well, that doesn't seem true when you're in the midst of profound difficulty or sorrow. 
He'll never allow the righteous to be shaken. I feel pretty shaken at least once a week. So it must be that to some extent, these statements about the faithfulness of God in the midst of our circumstances have their ultimate fulfillment or truth in the life to come and in the promise of salvation. Amen? But if you're anything like me, when you really start to go through it, you doubt God's heart towards you in the moment and therefore you doubt his heart towards you in the future in eternity so here's Naomi suffering and thinking that God is happy about or at least indifferent to what she's going through God is never happy about or indifferent to your sorrow his word just told us so He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. To prove it, he sent Jesus to identify with us in the midst of our sorrow. And more wondrously, to save us from the source of all sorrow, which is sin. We left Ruth and Naomi grieving in Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, but God did not. Ruth 2 introduced us to a dashing, wealthy, older man named Boaz. Well, I'm convinced whether he had a full head of hair or not. That my mom says he did. Uh, he was handsome. It is possible to be handsome without having a full head of hair. Ruth, now becoming an expert, I think, in Jewish law, uh, having stayed with Naomi on her trip back to Jerusalem, or to Bethlehem, rather, takes hold of the rights that are afforded by the Mosaic Law to the sojourner, to the widow, and to the destitute. In the Law of Moses, God makes it expressly clear that if you own a farm, a field, and you're out harvesting, you're not supposed to harvest right up to the edge of the field. You're supposed to leave that slot for those who have nothing and no means to buy. Um, you're also, if you happen to drop some heads of grain during the harvest, you're not supposed to pick them up. Leave them there for the poor and for the destitute. Ruth seizes this right and takes to the fields to gather food for her and Naomi. And, and this told us that Ruth was no lazy clinger on to Naomi. She didn't just follow Naomi back to Bethlehem because she was nervous about her situation in Moab. She went because she genuinely cared about Naomi and because I think she genuinely believed she could help Naomi. And when we see Ruth go to Naomi and say, hey, I'm going to go glean in the fields to try to get us some resources, get us some food. And Naomi says, go for it. I think what we see happening there is that this gal was industrious. She wasn't lazy. She wasn't just waiting for somebody to give her a handout. Incidentally, Ruth winds, winds up in, in the part of the field owned by Boaz, this handsome older fellow. Boaz notices her and blesses her for her kindness to Naomi. So Boaz's perspective when he sees Ruth in the field harvesting, after he engages with her, his perspective is he understands, whether intuitively or because she explains it, that the reason, the motive Ruth has for being out here is not just herself, but also her mother-in-law. So Boaz is moved by that kindness to be kind in turn to her, and he provides her with lunch, protection, and he instructs his men when she goes back to work 
feel free to drop some heads of grain for her on purpose so that she can pick them up and don't reproach her when she does so. And then he tells her at the end of the day, stay in my fields until the end of the harvest. Don't go into any other fields. So Ruth returns to Naomi after a long day of work, carrying probably weeks worth of barley. And then she tells Naomi about Boaz. There's two things that happen here. Just my opinion, the text isn't explicit about this. But thing number one is the, the good news. And thing number two, the size of the hall that Ruth comes back with. Both of these things work together to immediately improve Naomi's outlook. Right? Because at the end of chapter 2 in verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Well, that's a lot different than what she was saying in 20 of chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Lord has judged me and whipped me and sent me back to, to Israel empty. Naomi also said to her, this is back in chapter 2, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Good news. Oh boy, this is important. And I hope it's okay it, it, that I'm doing the thing where I didn't say all of this last week, but I'm, but I'm adding it this week. I hope that's all right, because I didn't want to overwhelm us last week, and apparently I preached too long last Sunday, so... It's good I didn't say all this. Good news, if you, if you listen, you'll be greatly helped by this. I, I mean it, and not because I'm insightful. Um, good news can, good news can go a long way towards helping you recover from sorrow and struggling. It can improve our emotions and mental health. Listen, if we are willing to have our emotions and mental health improved. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. We have to do this sometimes, right? Instruct our own hearts. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So what the Bible just told you and me is that we might tend to forget the goodness of God. That's a possibility. So we got to remind ourselves not to do that, right? One sure way to be miserable, one sure way to be miserable is to not notice or refuse to see how blessed you really are. Now, if you need to get somebody else in mind to make this application, you're welcome to do that. I give you permission. But don't sin. So it might be better to just get yourself in mind. One sure way to be miserable is to refuse to see how blessed you are because your sin is nailed to the cross. As soon as we can lose sight of that, isn't it amazing how every other blessing that we enjoy also matters not to us? 
and our appetite for uh, elevating ourselves and enjoying all that the world has to offer just increases and increases and increases while our satisfaction goes lower and lower and lower because we have refused to look at and remember the value of having my sin taken away and dealt with. Naomi no longer wants to be called Mara. What about you? I mean, I talk to some people and I'm like, I mean, from my perspective, I'm not living in anybody else's shoes, but from my perspective, it's like, like you got it pretty good. Right? The bills are all paid and you're not worried about how they're going to get paid next month. You have a device in your house that changes the temperature of the whole house. You got a vehicle that will literally get you to Lincoln in less than an hour. And you are miserable. It must be that you don't appreciate that your sins have been dealt with. Because if you think about it in these terms, my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And therefore it's well with my soul. Then all these other things that I enjoy are just icing on the cake. Teenagers especially, man, they struggle with this. I think some of you want to be called Mara. Like you like being miserable. None of the ones in this room. Okay, good. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, this is Ruth 3.1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? Can I just interject? Because this is nowhere in my notes, and if I don't say it right now, I won't forget. Boaz is like a distant relative, all right? Calm down. It's not Alabama. Uh, is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman, women rather you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down so that he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So we're going to pick up right where we left off so far as theme is concerned. Note, please, note Naomi's interest in and concern for Ruth. Naomi's still grieving, yet she cares for Ruth. The alternative here is... All sorrow, look, all right, another really good principle, like jot this down because it's a thousand percent true. All sorrow is augmented by selfishness. All sorrow is augmented by selfishness. That's A-U-G-M-E-N-T-E-D because some of you are actually writing. Praise Jesus. Augmented means increased, magnified, all sorrow is augmented by selfishness. So let's talk about people who make everything about them and, you know, and how miserable they are and uh, how hard life has been for them compared to everyone else. It's okay. I, I know that you all only have yourselves in mind right now. How terrible is that person at comforting someone else. 
I heard a story once about a gal who lost her husband and her son. I'm not talking about Naomi. And went to lunch with another gal who had lost her father some years before. And the entire lunch was filled with discussions about the gal who had lost her father a few years before. Meanwhile, the lady who had lost her husband and her son is sitting there going, and it was recent, is sitting there going, really? That's what we're going to talk about? That's a miserable comforter. But you can't offer anybody else comfort when you are completely consumed with yourself. And one of the signs and indicators that you're consumed with yourself is you can't stop thinking about how miserable you are. And the reason you can't stop thinking about how miserable you are is because you have forgotten that it's valuable beyond conception that your sin, all of it, has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. You lose sight of that. You see the trickle-down effect. Now you're not really much good to anybody. So note Naomi's interest in and concern for Ruth. When you are discouraged, lonely, sad, depressed, anxious, feeling mourning, and you're not sure why, okay? So disconnected from some obvious set of circumstances. You ever just wake up down, we call it waking up on the wrong side of the bed, right? When, when it's our kids. But when we do it, it's much different. If you, if you feel like that, and you're not sure the reason why, listen, if you haven't already, try caring about somebody else. I don't mean pretend to care about somebody else. I'm saying try in the midst of your... In the middle of that, just be like, okay, all right, for five seconds, who else can I show a little love to? Who else can I be kind to? Spreading your bad mood around just makes more bad mood. But if you can find somebody to engage and bless in the midst of your personal, private, emotional sorrow, you might be amazed what happens. Exceptions, okay? Here's an exception. If you're feeling those things in the midst of caring for someone else, and especially as a result of caring for someone else, it's probably time to reach out and ask for some help. Are you tracking? I don't mean to say if you're already, like your life is consumed with the the care and feeding and emotional support of another sinner, and you're at the end of your rope with that, well, you just need to do more caring and it'll fix everything. Uh-uh, no, no, no. I'm talking about that depression that's like intangible. That anxiety that just follows you around all day going, this is why you suck and this is why you're terrible and this is why life is awful for no reason. You wanna deal with that? Go love somebody else. If your life is that of caretaker and you start feeling those feelings, get some help. Do you hear me? Okay. By and large, we need to learn this lesson from Naomi and Ruth in chapter two. Selfishness makes sorrow worse. So Naomi now, having made her way back to Bethlehem, having beheld with her eyes the blessing of Ruth going out and doing some gleaning and coming back with a six-gallon bucket full of grain, and hearing the good news about this fellow Boaz, Naomi 
finally is shaken out of her sorrowful stupor and begins to return the favor. So point one, try caring for somebody else. Point two, parents and grandparents to a certain extent. You have a role to play. You have a role to play in helping your children find a mate. In fact, you bear some responsibility to do so. I am not saying you need to arrange their marriages. We're not going to get all Islamic about this, right? An argument could be made, but I'm not going to make it. I'll give you anecdotal um, evidence of the truth of what I'm saying first, and then we'll, we'll go back to Naomi and Ruth. Um, the fact of the matter is, two things had to happen for me to get married. Thing number one that had to happen is my mom had to know that I wasn't going to do any better than Lisa. That was critical, right? And then thing number two that had to happen in order for me to get married is God had to mercifully, for me, blind Lisa to who and what she was marrying long enough for the ceremony to happen, Okay. But if that first thing hadn't happened, I would have kept trying to do better. I would have. Oh, don't misunderstand me. There isn't anybody better for me. But I'm so stupid, I would never have realized that. So like Tarzan swinging through the jungle, I'm going from one gal to another. While the one that my mom liked, mom just kept around. So there were a lot of times when I would go back home for dinner and there would be Lisa. And I'd be like, well, it's going to be awkward if I ever bring a girl with me and my ex-ex-ex girlfriend is here. But mom knew better and she kept Lisa around, not as a, a daughter-in-law, but as a friend and as her daughter inherited from Jack and Judy when they moved away. I'm not saying my mom didn't have designs on one of her sons marrying Lisa, but I don't think that was her primary design. In the end, it played a pivotal role in me finally pulling my head out, as it were, and rightly evaluating the quality of this woman on the basis of the fact that my mom liked her. And then finally, rightly reaching the conclusion that not only was I never going to do better, but I should bless God that I even had a shot Parents, you have a role to play in helping your children find a mate. In fact, you bear some responsibility to do so. Christian parents who take no pains to make sure that their children, especially, well, never mind, their sons and their daughters are two things. Number one, given opportunities to meet quality potential spouses. That's, that's step number one. Moms and dads, you need to give your kids opportunity to meet quality, suitable partners. Thing number two, you need to protect your son or your daughter or both from potentially spiritually dangerous suitors and partners. I would rather have my kids screaming, I hate you, and slamming the door and safe from some predator than saying, I love you from a broken heart. You have a responsibility to protect them from unsuitable or spiritually dangerous partners. If you don't, 
you bear responsibility for the heartache when it happens. If you allow your children to pursue worthless mates, you are failing them, especially dads of daughters. Um, Now, the good news is, I mean, like me and Lisa, the, the quality of girl that Naomi is working with in Ruth is pretty high. It's going to be easy for me to get my daughters out of my house. Won't be an issue. They don't believe me. My daughters don't. But I know what's going to happen in two, three years. Right? Ruth is clearly a catch. And it seems to me the only reason the dogs haven't been sniffing around already is Boaz and Naomi have seen to her protection. Uh, That said, I don't love Naomi's plan. Bathe, check. Perfume, okay. Best dress, what does that mean? Go uninvited and unexpected to the threshing floor. No, I'm out, right? Let's explain threshing. For those of you who aren't wheat farmers like me, uh, I mean, like, I'm also not a wheat farmer. The way it works is you have to crumble up the heads of grain so that the seed encased in its protective shell can then be separated from that protective shell. Now, the genius way that they do this is they, uh, just with friction and wind, get the seed, which is heavier, disconnected from the shell, and then the wind carries away the shell, the chaff is what they call that. So the threshing floor was a place where they could get all the grain in a mound and just grind it up so that the wind would take away the chaff. Guess who did that? Not the ladies, okay? So at the end of the day, what you've got here is a bunch of men on a hunting trip or a fishing trip. At best, a men's retreat where there's drinking, right? And they're not all as reputable as Boaz. So I don't love this, hey, get looking hot and head on down there. It bothers me. It makes me uncomfortable as a father. But I do like this. And I'm willing to chalk my personal discomfort over Ruth's safety up to some cultural thing that maybe has been lost in translation over the years. I do like this. If you never take some steps of faith, you you might never really experience God's remarkable provision at the most unexpected times. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And look at the blessing he received because of it. Ruth took a huge risk, followed Naomi back to Bethlehem and look at the blessing she's already received because of it. And here's God all through the scriptures, consistently inviting us as his people to take some risks here and there, step out in faith here and there, in obedience, not risky disobedience. Step out in obedience and see how the Lord might provide. Well, look around. Part of the reason this is happening right now in this place is because some of us took a huge risk, not knowing where we were going, but knowing it was time to rock and roll, right? If my daughters come home, on the other hand, someday with a book called Uncovering the Feet of Your Future Husband, we're going to have problems. So, 
I like that Ruth is willing to, and I like that Naomi's a little nuts, right? I dig that. But I don't think this is prescriptive for our daughters. So if you, if you read the Bible and just take away the bits that you really like, you're going to find yourself in great danger very quickly. So if you're reading along, you're like, hey, she goes, Ruth went down to where all the men were. Okay, well, you're missing the point. That's, anyway. So she went down, verse six, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. <clears throat> I don't believe he was drunk, okay? Let me just throw that in there. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet and he said, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Then he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. All right, we need some help. <clears throat> In Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together, if brothers dwell together, and one of them, meaning they're not in separate countries, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her brother's husband Sorry, her husband's brother. <laughs> that was an awkward picture. Um, <clears throat> her husband's brother shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The term we would use is leveret marriage. Lever, in this sense, from the Latin, L-E-V-I-R. It literally just means a, a, a husband's brother. The law of leveret marriage was necessary in Israel because we're trying to keep the 12 tribes intact until Messiah comes and accomplishes all that's been promised and prophesied. So let's all take a moment and praise Jesus for coming and putting an end to this practice. Amen? What Ruth just did is propose marriage to Boaz. Um... I'm old-fashioned. I would have liked this to go the other way, but I think we, what, what Boaz does indicates that he didn't even think this was, like this possibility wasn't even on his radar. He wasn't going to ask Ruth to marry him. Are you, he's like, I'm old and gross. Why would she, I wouldn't even, I'm not going to make her uncomfortable and have to say no. He knew his familial ties to Elimelech, but Naomi would be the true Israelite beneficiary of the law of Deuteronomy 25. And she seems uninterested in bearing more children, or she may just be too old. We don't really know. 
But Ruth is not really the one who would be the target of Leverett marriage. She just isn't. But if she's claiming the right of the widowed sister here, there is another closer relative who is owed the opportunity to redeem her. Hence Boaz's response in verse 12. <clears throat> now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So we see two things about Boaz. One of them could kind of work against Ruth's preferences here. And that first one is that he is a man of great integrity. He recognizes that he doesn't really have first rights to claim Ruth if she wants to be redeemed by the Leverett principle. Second thing we see is he really cares for her so he doesn't send her home in the middle of the night. And he goes out of his way to say, look, I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do, which is ask this other fellow if he wants to redeem you first. But hubba hubba, honey, it's not because I don't want to. Right? He lets her know, lest she be like, oh, but I'm not good enough. And goes home crying to Naomi, I hate him, he's mean and gross. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So Boaz and I are in agreement. Girls. <clears throat> and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. She, she, so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughters? She told her, all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man ain't gonna rest until he settles this matter. Boaz doesn't want anyone disparaging Ruth for her actions, so he rises up early, proves he wasn't drunk the night before, amen? You don't rise early if you were drunk the night before. He probably didn't sleep much after learning that he might be about to marry Ruth. <laughs> I didn't sleep much the night before I got married. And, and I mean, I was in bed. I just wasn't sleeping. It's exciting. Anyway, Boaz, again, generously provides for both ladies. Guys, listen to me. Oh, look, there's some up there and there's some right here. If you're trying to woo a girl and you're like, oh, great, we're gonna, the old man's going to tell us. It's just practical stuff. It spans every generation. If you're trying to woo a girl, get a job and you can buy her nice stuff and give her experiences to enjoy. But a wise man woos his mother-in-law as well. It's true. So Ruth makes a point of telling Naomi that Boaz sent the grain for her mother-in-law. I didn't catch that when Boaz was talking to her, but she tells, she tells Naomi, Boaz said, I better not come home empty-handed to you. Naomi is such a delight. No jealousy toward Ruth. I think that's kind of amazing. Sometimes I talk to older, seasoned 
ladies, and they just sound kind of bitter towards young women. Like, there's nothing a young woman can wear that isn't too risque for some older ladies. And I think it's mainly because, like, you don't have that young, firm flesh anymore. And so you're driven by jealousy to be judgmental. Not so with Naomi. She takes time to comfort and encourage Ruth. And she shows the wisdom of her own experience, right? Don't worry, honey. He's going to take care of this. Boaz might have said, well, there's another redeemer and he might want to redeem you. But believe me, Ruth, ain't nobody but Boaz going to be redeeming you. He'll see to that. Lest Ruth be nervous. Like, who? Who is this man? I don't know. So what's the takeaway for those of us who aren't looking for a spouse? Without preaching the entire book in one sermon in order to grasp the point ultimately made at the end, it's difficult to capture the interest of a congregation with this text. Um, And you've all come to church, obviously, for different reasons, but by and large, you want to be told about Jesus. Amen? Some Old Testament books make that easier than others. Ruth isn't one of them. The meaning, um, God's purpose in, in including the book of Ruth in our Bible, some would argue, is merely genealogical because what ends up happening here leads to the line of David, which leads to the Messiah, right? You may have noticed it seems like the last two sermons that have come from this pulpit have been a little bit disjointed. And if you'll permit me to editorialize Real quick, I promise to draw these disjointed threads together. Um, A pastor who tends his own heart from the pulpit proves two things. Number one, he's not tending his own heart during the week. And number two, his preaching is about his own ego, not the spiritual health of the church. You can tell a pastor is tending his own heart from the pulpit similarly by two things. Number one, the sermons will perhaps subtly, perhaps obviously, be tilted towards casting him in the best light possible. Number two, it's rare for him to preach a narrative text because he struggles to find himself there. I didn't choose Ruth because it's about me. I chose Ruth because I know a handful of you would be comforted and encouraged by it. Walk with me. Chapter 1, what are we doing in Moab? What are we doing in Moab? Elimelech and Naomi are Jews. Sometimes, in the providence of God, the wrong side of the Jordan River starts looking more promising than the promised land. You hear me? And we wander into Moab. Two, sin, sorrow, and it's someone else's fault. Elimelech took Naomi and the boys to Moab, but he doesn't stick around to enjoy the consequences. Uh, Admittedly, we shouldn't judge him too harshly because his departure was out of his hands. He died. Husbands, don't make a decision. It's going to impact your wife and kids if you get taken tomorrow morning on the way to work, it's going to impact them negatively. 
Sometimes, many times, our sorrow is caused by someone else's decisions. Look, God never stopped loving and caring for Naomi. To prove it, he works in spite of two bad decisions. Number one, the trip to Moab was a bad decision. You could say, well, there was famine in Bethlehem. I don't care. You're in the promised land. You don't cross the Jordan again to go back to where you came from. What happened to generations of people who left Egypt and then started whining about wanting to go back? They wandered in the wilderness until they were dead and they never entered the promised land. That was bad decision number one. Bad decision number two, the marriages of her sons to Moabite women. This was forbidden. This was prohibited. Israelite men were not supposed to marry in the cultures around them. Three, chapter one, God knows and cares for you even in Moab, but you need to turn around and come home. Sitting in Moab, mourning all you've lost is not going to help. Four, God loves you enough to entice you back. So Naomi gets news that the famine has broken in Bethlehem. God had every right to just go, you fool. What are you doing in Moab? Get back home. Like we do as parents. Instead, the Lord is pleased to give Naomi a good word concerning things back home to incentivize her to go in obedience. The fam, famine has ended. Now, church, look around, please. Literally, right now, look around. We're not in Moab anymore. It's probably time to be done in Moab in our minds and hearts. Five. Chapters 1 and 2. God knows and cares for you even in the midst of sorrow and grief brought on by bad decisions. God knows you and he cares about you even in the midst of sorrow and grief brought about by your own bad decisions. To prove it, to prove it, Naomi gains Ruth as a daughter as she loses her husbands and sons. Look at me. Look. Don't miss Ruth in your life because your vision is blurred by the tears of sorrow in your life. Don't miss Ruth. Naomi almost missed her. Oh, go back home. Go back, Ruth. Don't come with me. Go back to idolatry. Go back to your mother and father. We miss Ruth when we miss that God is still pouring out blessing in our lives, even in the midst of sorrow. We just have to look for it. Look for it. Six, three things. God has a plan for you. God has work for you to do. And God has joy in store for you. 
okay? Boaz is not in Moab. Ruth has grain to gather and Naomi has mothering yet to do. Proves it. Seven. And finally, chapter three. You're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to sin. You hear me? You're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to sin. And you are still loved, protected by, and provided for by God. Naomi's plan isn't perfect. Hey, Ruth, go down there and hang out at the threshing floor. Ruth is put in a compromising position. Yeah? But what does she go home with? Grain and good news. Now, that's not prescriptive. I was clear about that. But I'm telling you, some of you can find the curse in every blessing. And the curse is this. Things are going well because God's judging me. There's not a more Reformed Baptist thing to think. Because I've never heard anywhere but among Reformed Baptists that that's how God judges people sometimes. He blesses them, lulls them into a false sense of security. What? She goes home with grain and good news. This all, all, every jot and tittle points to Jesus Christ. All of it. I don't have any of the benefits that I enjoy without him coming and redeeming me. So when we look through Ruth, and we're not done, we got one more chapter. Let's take a lot of joy in the fact that God gave us this text so that we would remember our Redeemer and know that he lives. Amen? Let's pray.